Well, good morning. You guys all well rested with that, that extra hour? That really a uh, game changer? I'm getting a lot of this. I know, right? Life goes on. What's, what's another hour of sleep? Uh, hey, real excited for this morning, not just because we're well rested, but uh, we also get to see some baptisms later uh, in the gathering today, which is also really exciting to, to celebrate uh, and to see. Hey, I know you just heard me talk about it in video, and now I'm going to talk about it in person, but... I do want to invite you to the Sneak Peek Volunteer Tour. Uh, it is a great opportunity next Sunday uh, just to come and be exposed to all the opportunities we have here uh, at Rolling Hills. And so if you're interested in registering for that, uh, we actually have signups out at the Next Steps counter uh, after the gathering today. It's not a timeshare sales pitch. You don't have to commit to anything. It's just going and seeing all the things that happen uh, on the weekends, throughout the week, and especially with uh, the drama and Christmas Eve gatherings coming up. There's a lot of special uh, opportunities to, to get connected and serve in that capacity. So I uh, invite you to come and be a part of that next Sunday. Well, this, uh, this Sunday, we are jumping back into Genesis. For those of you that haven't been with us uh, this past calendar year, we've been going through the book of Genesis. We took last month off uh, as we were focusing on prayer and uh, looking through the Lord's Prayer. And for me personally, that was just a real life-giving series for me personally. And I loved even having the opportunity to have one of those Sundays to teach. And now we get to hear for, uh, again as we kick off uh, where we are on this home stretch leading up until Christmas, the last 12 chapters uh, of Genesis this morning. And so if you're not familiar with the story of Genesis and where we are and how we got to where we are, uh, real quick Cliff Notes version. But we have talked starting from the beginning in Genesis 1 from creation, talked about humanity, talked about sin nature and the fall and how because of that our relationship with creation, with each other, and most importantly with God has been fractured. And there is nothing that can restore that apart from God's own supernatural doing. And so we see from the beginning, God promising a Messiah to come and save and restore his people. We looked at the flood with Noah. We looked at some of these uh, great men of faith from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, uh, also known as Israel. And then we're looking at one of Jacob's sons today, Joseph, in this home stretch. But real important before we jump into Joseph's life, Abraham was an amazing man of faith. And there was a covenant that God made with Abraham back then in early in Genesis that we're seeing play out in the narrative today. He promised Abraham in an old age, he said, who had no descendants at that time, he was just him and his wife Sarah, but he promised him that I am going to make your name great and that your descendants are gonna outnumber the stars and the skies that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And from that genealogy and that, that, that lineage, we see all the way through the Old Testament that being fulfilled when Jesus is born of Mary and ultimately comes to save and fulfill that promise that God foretold in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So that is the flyover. And right before we did prayer last month, Bill kind of dipped our toes in the water with Joseph. And so we kind of have to also look back at 37 before we can look at uh, 39 through 41 is because Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He was the 11th brother, but yet he was the firstborn to Jacob's favorite wife. Follow along with that? Okay. This isn't a message on polygamy. That's for a different time and day. 
But what we see here is amazing faith from these people. And what we see here is that because he was his father's favorite amongst the older 10 and even the younger one, you can only imagine how that sat with the siblings and the rivalry that comes with brothers. It was not well received. In fact, and it was very made known how appreciated and loved Joseph was amongst his brothers. Uh, it didn't help that even back then, Joseph had dreams that alluded to the fact that at one point in the story of his life that his brothers would bow down to him. He had a dream of, uh, of, of wheat and, and that his bundle stood nice and tall while the other 11 bowed down to him. And so being, you know, the young brother that he was, he went and told his brothers about that, which probably just compounded the hate and disdain they had for this little guy. And then he had another brother where the stars circled around him, including the moon and the sun, which was his parents in this dream. And so he told that to his parents as well. And even Jacob was like, that is just ludicrous. But he didn't forget the dreams that his son would have. And this is going to play out in his life, not in today's message, but it's important to be mindful of these things as we go through the narrative and the story of Joseph. Well, at one point at the end of Genesis 37, he sends Joseph out. Uh, Jacob, to go and check on his brothers who were shepherding a couple days away. And the brothers, as they saw Joseph coming up, they plotted to kill him because they were like, you know what? We're done. And it, I forgot to mention this. It was very easy to spot Joseph from miles away because his father created a very special robe for him that was made of linen of some of the most precious fabrics. And it was bright colored and you could just see it. And it was just Another physical expression that Joseph was the prized possession in this family. So they see him coming, and they said, we should just murder him. And then we'll take back the cloth, and we'll tell dad that it was an, a wild animal or something like that. Well, he had an older brother, Reuben, who's like, I just don't know if I feel well about that decision. So hey, here's this big water cistern. Let's throw him in there, and then he'll just dehydrate and, and, and suffer, and he'll die on his own terms. And so we didn't murder him, but... There we go. Secretively, Reuben was in return later to rescue his brother, but he didn't get a chance to do that because while he was still in that cistern, some slave traders came by and the brothers sold Joseph to slave traders. And they took his robe, tore it apart, dipped it in animal's blood and took it back to Jacob and said, we found this, do you recognize this? And he knew instantly that that was his son, Joseph. And he wept and he was just so broken that he said, I will never experience happiness and joy again in this life. And he just wept bitterly. So that's where we pick up at the beginning of Genesis 39. Joseph is being taken into Egypt by these slave traders where he's sold to a man named Potiphar, who was a very, very powerful man in the court of Pharaoh uh, back then. A different Pharaoh than the Pharaoh we read about in Exodus with Moses. Um, but Pharaoh nonetheless. And so if you have your Bibles today, and it's not just because we're down to one screen, we're going to do a lot of reading together today because these three chapters could be three teaching series in and of themselves. And so we're just going to read the story of God together today. And so I'm going to be reading from the NIV, which is the Bible in the seat back pocket in front of you. And so not all of these verses are going to be on the screen. And so if you want to grab your Bibles... We're going to start in Genesis 39, which is page 64, if you have the seatback Bible in front of you. And here's where we pick up in the story of Joseph, starting in verse 1. 
Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of this Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food he ate. So this was a pretty trustworthy guy. That here is this Hebrew slave. We don't know how long he was in, for lack of better words, ownership of Potiphar until he experienced this kind of responsibility. But we see this immense sense of character and this great sense of integrity that Joseph was living out. And what we see just in those short six passages of Scripture, multiple times, five times, we see that the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord blessed Joseph and didn't bless him in the sense that maybe Joseph would have liked to have been blessed. If it was up to Joseph, he probably would want to be freed from Potiphar's ownership and go back to his Hebrew land and be with his father. But he was faithful to where God had put him and he was going to do everything to the best of his ability. The fact that Potiphar didn't even know the state of his own finances. So think of us that are, that are married, like sometimes we're like, do I even trust my own spouse with my finances? And then are bills going to get paid? You know, things are coming in. To, to completely trust somebody with your life and your livelihood and your land in your house and all of your property and your livestock to the fact that you only had to worry about what you ate. This is like implicit trust he had with Joseph. But because God had his blessing upon him, Potiphar had no reason to second guess this. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul talks about those of us made alive in Christ that there is this daily renewal and transformation of our hearts and of our minds. And so we're seeing this play out in Joseph's life that his mind daily, although these are not the circumstances he longs for, he's asking God's presence to lead and renew him. Colossians 3 Verse 17 says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so whether you vocalize this or it's in your actions, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So despite his circumstances, Joseph was faithful. And I think it's important to point out here that so many times the absence of hearing God's voice in our life we connect that to the absence of God's care. And that is a lie from the enemy. Just because we don't hear an audible voice, or we're not seeing God move in our timeline, does not mean that the absence of his faithfulness and goodness in the midst of our hardship. Just to give you perspective, from the time that Joseph was bought by Potiphar up until what we're gonna see in 41, uh, he spent 12, 13 years either in slavery or in prison, nearly half of his life. 
we get frustrated when God doesn't answer our prayers from that morning or from the night before, right? We just live in the instant gratification. If God's not moving, we believe that he does not have our best in mind. So therefore, if we can't beat him, let's join him. And we do what culture tells us to do when we buy into the noise and the voices, both that are audible and the inaudible voices of the enemy that speak those lies that go against our purpose and our character. But as the Apostle Paul said, and as we see Joseph doing, he's doing it all for the glory of God, and he is not letting his faith be shaken by his circumstances. So he continues on here, also at the end of verse 6, it also says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And this was noticed by lots of people, and particularly Potiphar's wife. And if you're not familiar with the story, Potiphar's wife had eyes on Joseph and she made her intentions with him quite clear, both in her words, actions, and deeds. But Joseph was a man of character and integrity, like we talked about here. She, uh, she made her intentions very clear from the get-go that she verbally invited him to sleep with her. So there was no beating around the bush. She wasn't, you know trying to make cutesy eyes with him or we should go get coffee or your marriage is in trouble, let's talk about, you know, she wasn't like trying to woo him in. She was like, hey, I want you back there. And Joseph was like, no. He was very clear. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. In fact, scripture doesn't say how long. This could have gone on for months. This could have gone on for years. We don't know the timeline, but it said day in and day out, Potiphar's wife pursued him. And it finally got to the point where he was like, I've said it no multiple times. I'm gonna make it even more abundantly clear in verse nine. He says that no one is greater in this house than I am, Joseph. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice it wasn't how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against you or sin against God. Potiphar, my master, or sin against myself, but he was like, I cannot sin against God. This goes against like the fabric of my faith and everything inside of me. And I will not violate that at any cost. So at one point, what happens is he shows up for work. And probably back then, people that were in uh, that kind of authority being the, the number two in Pharaoh's command and um, it was probably a multi-level home and that first ground level floor where all the servants would work and then the private quarters were on the second story and, and the third story depending on how tall it was and so Joseph shows up to work one day it's getting to the point where like I don't even want to be in the same room with you I don't want to be anything that could be misconstrued or anything that could be found in a compromising situation shows up no one's there she literally leaps out jumps towards him, grabs his cloaks, and like, take me to bed. And he flees, leaving his clothes, his, his jacket behind. Now this is the second time that Joseph's clothing has given a false narrative about who he is. First it was his robe with his brothers that he was dead when he wasn't, and now he's being seen as this potential, you know, predator, rapist against the wife of a governing official. And so she wasn't going to let her ego be bruised by this. And so she screams for help. Everyone rushes into the house, including Potiphar. What is going on? 
And not only does she blame Joseph, but she blames her husband. She says, if you look in the text, it says, this slave of yours tried to make sport of me. And so she's putting blame on Potiphar, putting blame on Joseph. And we see in verse, uh, uh, verse 19 that Potiphar seethes with anger. But what we don't know here in different commentaries and, and theologians most of them point to the fact that based off of his response after verse 19, points to that his anger wasn't necessarily directed to Joseph. That he was also angry at his wife because he had to have known his wife's character or lack thereof. Because he saw Joseph's work and his credibility and his character. And he was like, this doesn't line up. But yet, I can't let this go unpunished. And him being over the, 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 the court of, of the guard and having this um, authority, I mean, he could have executed Joseph right there on the spot. I mean, that was a capital offense of rape back then, regardless, let alone a slave against a governing official's spouse. But he chose not to execute Joseph, but instead sent him into the king's prison. And so the king's prison wasn't just your normal prison. It wasn't great by any means. Don't hear me out. But it wasn't like the dungeons of where like the criminals went. This is where like political prisoners were sent and not Hebrew slaves that, you know, wronged their masters. So we see here that he had to deal with it because he didn't want to make a mockery of himself or his wife, but yet he was upset that he's losing this companion who he entrusted everything in his house. So he's losing something personally as well too and sends him to prison. But look what happens shortly after Joseph is sent to prison. Verse 20 through 23, it says this. But while Joseph was there in person, the Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who held in the prison. And he made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. It's kind of like King Midas, whatever this guy touched turned to gold, right? So Potiphar is like, I trust you implicitly. I'm not gonna micromanage you. I'm not even gonna check in. And now he's in prison and the warden sees this exact same character and integrity and does the same thing and gives him that responsibility. I mean, what is this guy doing that is exuding so much faithfulness and goodness and trustworthiness that his character and integrity is speaking for himself this way? Because even in the spite of being now in prison, and I would have to believe that Joseph was assuming that I'm here for life. This is it. This is how I'm gonna spend the rest of my life uh, for something that I did not do. But we see this faith that we see written out in Hebrews talking about it's the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we can't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients, looking at Hebrews 11, the hall of faith of all these Old Testament heroes, Joseph being one of those, for his commendable faith. So his first point here is in times of trials and injustice, an unwavering faith empowers us to resist the allure of sin and make choices that honor God. And really quick with character integrity, I will say this. You, we, me, all of us, guard your heart. 
and guard your soul. Because man looks at the outwards, but the Lord looks at the heart. You don't just wake up that morning and be like, you know what? I'm gonna go sleep with someone else today. You know what? I've been thinking about embezzling a couple hundred thousand dollars. Why not today? I'm gonna cheat on that exam. I'm gonna do, no. It starts with compromise and that goes unseen. That's why Jesus spoke very bluntly about this. He says that even if you look at another person with lust, you are committing adultery. And if you look at someone with anger, you are committing murder. It's our heart. That is integrity. Having good behavior, anyone can do that. That's just behavior modification. That's not the gospel. That's not kingdom living. That's not following and practicing the ways of Jesus. But loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Guard your heart. That is how you navigate and can manage and fight with an unwavering faith in your life. Genesis 40. We find out, as I said earlier, at the end of this chapter, he is 30 years old, so 12 years, half of his life just about in prison or as a slave. Has this leadership ability to oversee people and things like that. And he bumps into two people who had high-ranking officials in the court of Pharaoh, his cupbearer and his chief baker. And these people were like the inner circle for Pharaoh. You do not get closer to Pharaoh than these guys because if you were to attack, assassinate, or poison, you would go through these people because these people protected the food and the drink that was fed to the king. And for whatever reason, they're in prison. And it could have been for anything. It could have been something legitimate and malicious. His dinner could have been undercooked. Could have been food poisoning and he got sick and they thought he was poisoned. And so they're in there waiting for the result of a trial probably. And so this is where we're gonna read a, a chunk of scripture. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in 40. But real quick, what we're to see here is Joseph doing all things for the glory of God where the... The, these people have dreams. And back then in the Middle East, dreams were what the pagan gods communicated to the people with. And so there were these mystics and these scholars and they would have books where they would document uh, symbolism, numbers and things like that that they would go to and they would reference to try to decipher and to interpret these dreams for people in hopes that they would be accurate. Uh, but these were like within an inner circle of the education system back then, which Joseph did not have access to. So it's good to know that going into this thing, so that Joseph, when he's going to do what he's about to do, it isn't because of man. It's not because of his own education or experience. But as even Joseph points out, it's because of God. So starting in chapter 40, verse 4, it says, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. And after they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer, the baker, the king of Egypt, who was being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw they were dejected, and so when he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph, he said, I, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as they budded, it blossomed and it clusters ripened into grapes. 
Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took it to the grave, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup into his hand. Joseph said, this is what this means. The three branches are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you were used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. And when the chief baker saw that Joseph had been given favorable interpretations, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. In my dream on my head, there were three baskets of bread. The top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them on this top basket right out of my head. Joseph said, this is what it means. The three baskets are three days. So within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. Sorry, it's important. Pharaoh is not gonna lift up. He's gonna lift off your head, hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, I don't know if there was like a pause, like when he asked Joseph to interpret his dreams, and Joseph's like, are you sure? But Joseph just said, here it is, because I'm not doing this out of my own strength. This is what the Lord is saying. Uh, so then the third day happened to be Pharaoh's birthday. And so he gave a feast for all of his officials. So he calls them out of the prison, the two. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in his presence and his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. So once again, he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hung the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So yet again, here is Joseph feeling betrayed, feeling forgotten, looked over, abandoned, all those things, and yet did not lose heart. He pressed on in the hardships. He did not let his external realities rewrite his internal beliefs. And I think so oftentimes in the face of discouragement, we do that. That we allow our circumstances to change what we know to be truth, but because we want to cling to something tangible and it's easier to put Band-Aids over our wounds rather than trusting that God is doing something greater for us. And so the Apostle Paul says, there, well, there's a couple things how we can respond to that. One is that we can, we can go to God's word. We look to the word for this unwavering faith that can bring us comfort. Romans 15, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide that we might have hope. That's Romans 15, four. So we can look at Joseph. We can look at people who went through decades of trials and hardships, and yet we saw God's goodness that gives us hope for however long our seasons are. And I have to imagine that there are people here today that are in that season, season of waiting, Maybe you're out of that season and you're looking back and you're seeing God's goodness. And maybe you're not there yet, but there's some shakable ground beneath you because you feel like something's coming and there's fear and anxiety and feelings. So that's why we can look at God's word because we can see in God's unchanging goodness and faithfulness that what he did in Joseph's life, he's gonna do in our life. The second thing Paul talks and encourages people to do in the face of discouragement is that we gather together as corporately as the group of believers. He says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The enemy loves to isolate us and kind of pull us off from our community and our family groups so that we can just be in complete isolation. It's easier for us to believe those lies when the only voice we're hearing is that one. But when we're together like this in the public gathering at church on Sunday or in our community groups or we're linking arms with like-minded people, when we're sharing or being honest and transparent about our hardships and our frustrations and people can start speaking gospel truth into our lives and point us back to Jesus, that's how we can combat against feelings of discouragement. And so come, because one, you can receive it, and two, you never know when God's gonna use you and your story to speak hope into others' discouragement. I even heard that after the nine o'clock this morning, people came out hearing testimonies of these people who were, got baptized at the nine, and they're like, that story, that story changed me. Your story matters. God is writing your testimony, and he is not done with it yet. So don't let the lies rewrite what is truth in here. And last but not least, Jesus you are discouraged, he invites us to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give rest. And more than rest, he gives purpose and restoration, and we can lay the burdens at his feet and experience him in a way that only Jesus offers. So in times of trials and injustice, an unwavering faith empowers us to remain steadfast in our character and our devotion to God. So this happens, at least for one of the guys that turned out good, and he forgot Joseph. Well, how long did he forget him for? Well, it says right here at the beginning of 41, two full years had passed. You would have think sometime in two years, he's like, man, I'm so glad I'm not in jail anymore. How did I get here? Oh, that's right, the dream guy. Somehow forgot. Until Pharaoh has a dream. And it was believed back then in the Middle Eastern culture and times that when dreams came in sets of twos, that it was gonna happen. It was gonna come to pass. Pharaohs also believed that they were divine beings. And so pharaohs did not need people to interpret their dreams because they were gods themselves and they could interpret their own dreams. Well, Pharaoh had two dreams and he could not, for the life of him, figure out what they meant. He brings in his other people and his experts to solve this and interpret it. They couldn't either. And it was then that the cupbearer was like, oh, I made a huge mistake. I know a guy, oh, I sure hope he's alive still, right? Because he didn't know if he was still alive these last two years. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, there was a guy who when I had this dream said this and it happened to the point. And so Pharaoh's like, go and get him. So let's read here in Genesis 41, 1 through 8. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came out seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds, and after them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Pharaoh woke up, and then he fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. 
After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been yet a dream. The morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for them. It was then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and imprisoned me to the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream in the same night and each dream had a meaning of its own. And a young Hebrew was there, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And the things turned out exactly as he interpreted them. I was restored to my position and the other man was hung. So Pharaoh immediately sends for Joseph because he was like, I, I need this person, if he can, to interpret these dreams. So it picks back up here in verse 16. Here is Joseph in front of the most powerful person in the nation. And he could have said, I got this gift. I can do it. Thinking selfishly, this is my ticket out of jail card. But instead in 16, he says, I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answers he desires. And this doesn't mean, as we're going to see, that the interpretations were desired as like a good thing necessarily, but he's going to be able to interpret them. And that's what Pharaoh's desiring here. And so we're going to see what that means here, 17 through 38. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of a Nile, when out of the river came out seven cows, fat, sleek, they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny, ugly, and lean. Never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And then in my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. And I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. So Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grains are also seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the scorched, worthless heads of grain. They are seven years of famine. So it is just as I had said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. So the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is the matter has been firmly decided by God and God's going to do it soon. So here is the reality. This Hebrew slave, 12 years, slave in prison, abandoned in front of the most powerful man of the world, telling him, it was like, you're gonna have seven good years, you're gonna have seven hard years. Without skipping a beat because I can only assume and believe because he's just so in tune with the spirit of God at this point. He gives him a remedy for it. 
And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God made all this known to you, there's no one more discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to your throne will I be greater than you. If this is not your rags to riches story, I don't know what is. It goes on, we don't have time to cover it. Pharaoh gives him his his ring, the authority to do everything and anything in the name of Pharaoh. The finest chariots, the finest security detail. Gives him a wife from the second most powerful and influential priestly family where God gives him two sons. And as he continues to rule and manage the northern and southern country of Egypt, God's blessing pours out over these seven years. Abundance, like they have never experienced as a country before. And just as he said, then seven years of a famine came. And it wasn't a famine that just kind of caused some discomfort. Like it wreaked havoc not just in Egypt, but in all the surrounding countries. But because of uh, Joseph's wisdom and foresight and the leadership that God placed him in, because of his faithfulness, he was able to open up these grain houses so that people could come and survive and have food. And not just from Egypt, but from surrounding countries. And so here we still get to see that Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will continue to guard your descendants because after this, we see the lineage of the Old Testament all the way to the line of Jesus. And so we look at Joseph and his life and the hardships and the trials and the injustices and not just a bad day at work, but we're talking decades of hardships. And yet he prevailed in his faith of an unceasing kind that I personally long and strive for in my life. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says this. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong things, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, this isn't written to the Old Testament people. This isn't for the Old Testament Jews and the Hebrews. This is New Testament charge for the church, for us, that we would be men and women of character, integrity, and valor, that although we are bombarded with temptations, that as we pray daily, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, give us this day our daily bread, May your kingdom come. May your will be done. These are the things that Joseph desired in his life. And we saw how it played out in his goodness. 
So in times of trials and injustice, unwavering faith assures us that God's plans are being fulfilled even when we cannot see the immediate results. Again, the absence of his voice is not the absence of his presence. There is nowhere we can go from the presence of God. And he is for us. He is for you, regardless of your decisions. And for those in here who don't believe that, that is because you are believing a lie from the enemy. So today, I don't know for some of us if it's about building character and integrity that's unwavering. Maybe, maybe we've compromised and we're rebuilding trust with friends, family, coworkers. Maybe for some of us here, it's about finding hope of an unwavering faith in the waiting. And maybe it's recognizing the unwavering faithfulness that God has to us in our life, even the times when we don't see it. Psalm 27 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses. I mean, even when Pharaoh was just giving everything and speaking it into existence for Joseph, it says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. C.S. Lewis once said that hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. And I, I, I sit here and I look at Joseph's life and it's like, this is the faith I want to have. Not that people would see me and think better of me, but just that I would experience a new profound enrichment and love and joy and satisfaction and intimacy of my Savior that I would not be persuaded for any other idols that this world has to offer. But following Jesus is hard. It is hard. Jen Gilbranson, who's our lead pastor of, sorry, not our lead pastor, sorry. Uh, Jen's over there, she's freaking out. Tyler, what did you just say? No, she's our campus pastor of lead ministries. And when we would work with our middle school students, she would always say that following Jesus is hard, but I've never regretted it because Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. Even when you feel abandoned, you feel alone, you feel betrayed, follow Jesus. Lean into that. And when we do that, that is the unwavering faith. I want for not just for myself, for my own family, but for our faith family and for the followers of Jesus all throughout the world. And so today we get to hear stories of people making that proclamation of unwavering faith in their own life by being baptized. They have made decisions and profess that Jesus is Lord and today they are gonna enter the waters of baptism and say that publicly, I am following Jesus for all the days of my life. And so as we hear testimonies today and we clap and we cheer and we celebrate, um, may they inspire you the way they inspire me to cling to Jesus, to follow Jesus and desire that unwavering faith.